Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, this week we have a guest that I've gotten... I don't know how many requests for, but quite a few, uh, and I've wanted him on for a while, so I'm really happy to say that this week we have on Kirk Sorensen from Energy from Thorium. Now, on the show, I've mentioned a lot of times how I think that nuclear power has been the most unfairly treated form of power and is very arguably the uh, most potent form of power for the future of energy. Now, one interesting thing about nuclear power is that on my general side of debate, on the free market side, there is a lot of disagreement as to the nature of this technology, whether it's something that's truly promising, whether it's failed on the market, uh, etc. And my, my view has long been, I haven't seen any real evidence to contradict this, that, uh, the, that today's larger expensive nuclear power compared to, say, coal, oil, natural gas, particularly coal and natural gas, is... Uh, due to dramatic stifling by government regulation, by irrational, ultimately unscientific government regulation, and then also enormous unnecessary costs, which are created by uh, the view that nuclear power is a uniquely unsafe form of energy that requires much, much more extensive oversight. Whereas my, my view is that it's in fact, the safest uh, source of energy and doesn't fundamentally present any any greater magnitude of, of danger to human life. And in fact, because it can't, uh, uh, the nuclear material can't explode, it's less of a threat to human life than than any other energy uh, technology. Anyway, on today's show, we have um, an advocate of thorium. So thorium is one of the two major materials that. Uh, are thought of as, as material for a nuclear reactor. And you know, thorium is a term we use at CIP. It's, uh, we, we used to have a level of uh, you know, a contributor to CIP, which is called the thorium category, and is a very high level because thorium is this incredibly potent technology. And Kirk Sorensen has been an incredibly articulate spokesperson for advocating a certain type of thorium reactor and advocating policies that would allow such reactors to come on the market and perhaps revolutionize the world of energy. Uh, so without further ado, let's talk to Kirk Sorensen and I'll see you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us on Power Hour is Kirk Sorensen, founder of Energy from Thorium. Kirk, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much, Alex. Glad to be here. So you have a TEDx presentation that has been circulating around the web uh, for a while now. And the way you begin it is you tell about your own interest in this uh, material and then uh, ultimately technology called uh, called thorium, and we'll get in a little bit later what exactly it is. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into, how you became interested in thorium? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, I started working at NASA in early 2000, and uh, the group I worked with was predominantly interested in really advanced technologies for space exploration, propulsion technologies, uh, how we could live on on other planets. And I remember that. Uh, I had just read a paper by a, a young lady at Caltech who was talking about how we could terraform Mars someday, and I was thinking about future activities NASA might have on Mars or the moon or in space, and I realized, boy, we're really going to need nuclear power, and it just happened that I had a couple of colleagues in my group that were nuclear engineers, and one of them had a, a book in his office that he just got from the library. It was called Fluid Fuel Reactors, and, and I opened it up, and I was intrigued, and it talked a lot about thorium. I knew almost nothing about thorium, but as I, I borrowed the book from him and as I studied it, I began to realize that this was an energy resource like uranium, 
but but one that most people hadn't heard much about, and it had a number of distinct advantages over uranium as an energy resource. And I just became more and more interested, he and I both, and and we took it upon ourselves to talk to some of the people who had done the work uh, long ago on thorium as an energy resource, particularly at Oak Ridge National Labs in Tennessee. And the more I learned, the more I came to believe that that we had really overlooked an incredible opportunity for uh, an energy resource of tremendous magnitude that had a lot of really, really attractive features over other energy technologies. So I think it's, it's worth just noting what you said about um, in, in doing something on the scale of terraforming Mars, that there was really only uh, one option, and that was a, a kind of nuclear technology. So what is it about nuclear technology that would make it the one option in, in a situation where you need a massive amount of energy you know, in a remote place? Well, when you're looking at things off the Earth like we were at NASA, the, the overwhelming thing you have to contend with is you can't use combustion. And so all of your fossil fuels are off the table. You don't have oxygen where you're going on Mars or the moon or anything like that, and you don't have coal or gas or any of these other resources. So it really comes down to solar power and, and nuclear power. And, and we use solar power for the overwhelming amount of what we do in space, but there are some specific missions where we really need nuclear power. For instance, there's a rover on Mars right now that's being powered by the, the decay of plutonium-238. It's not a nuclear reactor, but it is using energy from nuclear decay, and that's enabling that Mars rover to have just a tremendous increase in performance over, over former more Mars rover technology that relied on solar power. So there's just times when, when nuclear is your only option, and, and it's not hard to extrapolate your mind back to the Earth and go, you know, there's a lot of places on the Earth where it's cold and dark and, and unpleasant for large parts of the year, and having a reliable, dense energy source like nuclear would be really advantageous. You know, I think dense is, is just one of the words um, to, to stress here because it's it's so much more dense uh, than anything. We had a, on our I Love Nuclear Facebook page today or yesterday, we just had uh, one of these diagrams about, you know, what is the energy density of different materials. And you, you take some of the more energy dense materials like sugar or fat in terms of foods and then coal and, you know, uh, oil or byproduct like gasoline, which are incredibly energy dense in terms of our day-to-day -day experience. And then you talk about a nuclear power source and you're talking about a million times more dense. Yeah, and the, the density is, is a function of the fact that that's how matter is built. I mean, if you think about the atom, you have this dense nucleus. It's very small in the center of the nucleus. And then around it, you have this cloud of electrons. All of the processes that we're pretty used to from a chemical perspective, whether it's combustion or digestion or solar power, they're all based on changing that electron cloud around the, around the nucleus and lifting it to high energies and dropping it to low energies. And there's a certain amount of energy there. I mean, it's, it's definitely energy dense, as you pointed out. But when you get down into the level of the nucleus, it's a million times more energy dense. And there's, what I find interesting, there's no real in-between. You know, it's just the, the structure of matter itself. You move from the electrons to the nucleons, and you're going up by that factor of a million into a much, much denser, denser regime of energy. But it should be noted that, and, and you probably have brought this up before, that you know the, the whole universe is nuclear power. I mean, it's yeah. the basic power source of the stars, and, and everything, when you get down to it, derives from nuclear power in some way. Well, so that in that context, I think we can raise uh, indirect nuclear. I mean, in a sense, you can call a lot of things indirect nuclear, but sort of the most popular form of indirect nuclear, which is so-called solar, although, of course, fossil fuels are, are ultimately... Uh, solar, but um, in terms of in terms of density, I mean, it's it's pretty common sense that solar is is intermittent, and there's a lot of storage difficulties with that. But I mean, how does how does and, and if you think of the sun as this giant nuclear reaction, um, I mean, what what's the density of what we actually get from that reaction? You know, however well, million miles away. Uh, yeah, our, our density is limited for that very reason. We're 150 million miles away from the source, and and that's a good thing. You know, that's why we have a nice, pleasant planet to live on. But uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad for what the density of solar is at this distance from the sun. You know, we can look at other planets in the solar system and see what happens when you're too close to the sun. But that said, it is a it is a fairly diffuse source. It's about a uh, thousand watts per square meter in full sun at, at the equator, and you know that's nice. But it means you're gonna you're gonna consume a lot of area in order to collect enough energy to power an industrial civilization. And then there's the other fact that we're on a big spherical planet that's rotating, which means half of the time the, 
solar panel is not going to be illuminated. You know, again, these are just physical facts that aren't going to change. And that's why uh, solar power, at least on the surface of the earth, is, uh, is always going to be a diffuse and intermittent source of energy. Yeah, I really appreciate just the, the stress on the uh, fundamental physical factors. Now, we're going to talk about economic factors because of each, each of these, you have a conversion process, which takes a certain amount of resource and technology and whatnot uh, to do. But you have a starting point with nuclear of, of you know, a million times more concentration and complete, potentially completely on demand, uh, which is you know, much different from the, the baseline of solar. And I think it's worth pointing out, just looking at this from a historical context that the trend that the historical trajectory of energy usage is going from diffuse and intermittent to dense and on demand I mean that's the so-called renewables are what people subsisted on for most of human history and then we have coal oil and natural gas which are far more dense and far more reliable and you know, the nuclear is so much more uh, dense and just as reliable so it, it raises the question: What's the what's been the history of this? Why why has it been so uh, so slow to proliferate? Because we used to think that well, this is obviously the way of the future, and now most people don't think that at all. I think I think the answer to that question has to do with with two with two years, 1938 and 1939. In 1938, fission was discovered in Germany, and in 1939, World War was initiated in Germany. The fact that those two events took place in such close proximity, both in time and in space, I think has had lasting impacts on why and how nuclear power was developed. And I think it's one of the great tragedies of human history that this discovery, which has so much potential to benefit the human race, happened to happen right then and right there. Because what that meant was nuclear fission was immediately flagged as a, a risk for war. Uh, Leo Lizard helped, he basically wrote a letter and he had Albert Einstein sign it, which he sent to President Roosevelt that said, hey, we think that the Germans are going to make a bomb and we think that we should go make a bomb in response to that. And so the glorious discovery of nuclear energy was immediately transformed into a wartime activity whose goal was uh, explosive power. And the world's introduction to the power of fission came on April or on August 6, 1945, when Truman announced we just destroyed a city in Japan. That was the first time the overwhelming majority of the people in the world knew anything about the power of fission. And I, I find it really a tragedy that that's how things took place because that sequence of events unfolded in the world that we have today, a world where nuclear energy was introduced to the world in, in horror and destruction and terror and fear, rather than with a real awareness of what it could mean as far as living a better life and having a, a higher quality of life. A moment ago, you talked about the march of technology throughout human history, and I think you nailed it right on the head there, that it has always been a march from lower energy density, intermittent, unreliable sources to dense and more reliable sources. And I think there is no reason to believe that that is going to reverse and go backwards, that we are going to move from dense, reliable fossil fuels to intermittent and diffuse wind and solar. I think you're betting against history to say that. Uh, on the other hand, I think that developing uh, safe and effective nuclear energy sources is very congruent with the march of, of technology and history over thousands of years. This really is the next big step to take. We've, we've taken, I think, a baby step into it with the uranium fission technologies we've implemented thus far, but there's a much bigger step to take, and it's one that was foreseen almost from the beginning, but that's really uh, the future, I believe. Um, okay, so we, I think there's a, there's a lot of history we can discuss in terms of the the demonization uh, of the technology and, and part of the the pretext being the the bomb. Although I mean there's there was a lot a lot of activism by anti technology activists you know in the 60s 70s 80s uh, to cash in on that uh, completely. I mean to to completely. Um, I mean, as, as Petter Beckman, the great nuclear advocate, said, I think it's you know it makes no more sense to to automatically associate nuclear with bomb than it does electric with chair. I mean, any yeah. any power source 
can go out of control. Any power source can be used to do a number of things, and um, you know sometimes you need a power source in in something like war. Oil was decisive in World War One and World War Two, and that that doesn't make it a bad thing. That makes it a potent uh, thing. But that said, um, I want to go to the more technology because you mentioned that that uranium technology was uh, was the beginning. So how do you see the um, what's the early history of uranium technology in terms of both its promise and what you see as its shortcomings? Well, uranium is a remarkable substance. It has two isotopes in it, one of which is very rare, but will, will fission, will split uh, on, on contact with a neutron. That's uranium-235. The other one, uranium-238, is fairly inert, but if it absorbs a neutron, it will become plutonium-239, which is also fissile. And so very early in the 1940s, it was realized, okay, if we separate these two isotopes, one from the other, if we get enough of the U-235, we can make a bomb. So that was the beginning of what they attempted to do. And shortly thereafter, it was realized, well, wait a minute, we can take all this other uranium, you know, over 99% of uranium, and if we just get it exposed to some neutrons, we can make another substance, plutonium-239, that can also be made for bombs. So those were really the two initial thrusts of the war effort uh, during the Manhattan Project, and that's why uranium-plutonium technology got such a head start. Now, at that same time, thorium and its derivative, uranium-233, were also discovered. They were discovered about a year after plutonium by the same people who discovered plutonium, uh, Dr. Glenn Seaborg at the University of California in Berkeley. And immediately the same thought, can we turn uranium-233 into a bomb, and can we make it? And there were a couple of reasons why it didn't work out, one of which was uh, thorium itself doesn't have any fertile, it doesn't have any fissile isotope. There's nothing in the thorium that will sustain a fission reaction. It is all just fuel waiting to be. It is, it is fertile is, is the right word. So you can't take a, a pile of thorium like they could take a pile of uranium and, and create a reactor. It just wasn't possible. You had to start with uranium. And that meant that even if you wanted to make thorium into uranium-233, you were always going to be disadvantaged relative to making uranium into plutonium. It was just so much easier to do it and faster to do it to make it into plutonium. The other thing we discovered was it really made a, a, a contaminated substance. The uranium-233 they made had a contaminant in it called uranium-232 that for a number of reasons made it very much less attractive for use in weapons. And so in the fervor of the, the late Manhattan Project era, uh, thorium was just set aside. They said, listen, we don't see uh, a use for this in the war effort, so we're just going to not work on it. We're going to concentrate all our effort on uranium and plutonium. And they did. Now, about the same time, though, they also discovered that thorium and uranium-233 would make a superior power reactor over uranium and plutonium. And that was kind of exciting, but again, it was one of these things that was set aside as well, someday we'll investigate that. And someday we'll look into that. But we got more important things to do right now. We have to, we have to win this war. And then after the war was over, they felt like they needed to build up against the Soviet Union. So, by the time people were really looking at reactor technology in the mid to late 1950s to make power, uranium plutonium just had a huge head start over the thorium technology. Even though the thorium technology really did have a number of aspects that made it superior to the uranium technology. So. It was a head start that uh, that they that Thorium's never overcome since. Uh, so what are what are some of those uh, aspects that, that you say were recognized even then, in terms of superiority? The, the most fundamental aspect was if you want to use nuclear fuel in a sustainable way, you need to be consuming the the abundant stuff. In the uranium's case, you need to be consuming the uranium two thirty eight, the ninety nine plus percent of uranium. And in thorium's case, it's all one isotope. It's thorium-232. But those are the things you need to be using. Uh, the reactors that they use to consume that material are called breeder reactors because they have to use fissile material. All of them have to start on some kind of fissile material. But the idea is once they start, they continue to make as much, if not more, fuel than they consume. And this is where the basic difference between uranium and, plutonium, or uranium and thorium manifests itself. If you want to consume uranium in a breeder reactor, you have to go to what's called a fast breeder reactor. That's a reactor where neutrons are not slowed down, where they're kept fast, and it involves a, a number of, of different technologies. None of our reactors in, 
in operation today in the United States and almost none in the world, I mean, with like one or two exceptions. None are fast breeder reactors. Almost all of the reactors we use in the world use slowed down neutrons, and that's because it's easier to control a slowed down neutron reactor. It's also easier to uh, start. It takes less fuel to, to use a slowed down neutron reactor. Those are called thermal spectrum reactors. So this is the real magic of thorium. It turns out that you can build a breeder reactor with slowed down neutrons if you use thorium. And that is a basic differentiator between thorium and uranium is that that very impressive capability is not possible in uranium. It's only possible in thorium. Um, going more broadly to the, um, you know, the, the challenges and promise of, of nuclear power, I mean, one of the arcs we have throughout its history is, you know, a very strong debate over is this inherently more expensive than fossil fuels, or even today, many environmentalists claim that um, it's, in, you know, it's inevitably going to be more expensive than solar and wind. I don't regard the latter claim as worthy of discussion, um, but I'd like you to just comment on uh, these two issues where with juxtaposition of, on the one hand, we've got this incredibly dense, and also we haven't talked about it, but incredibly plentiful fuel source. So your fuel is much closer to free than, say, a fossil slash hydrocarbon fuel. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems it's it's often viewed as more expensive, and in many cases is is more expensive. So why is that? Well, this, yeah, that's a very good question. It's worth jumping into a little bit. Most of the reactors we have in the world today are based on the use of pressurized water. And this came about not because we set out in the beginning saying, let's go build an inexpensive reactor. What really happened was, was in the early 1950s, the Atomic Energy Commission in the United States, which was the one that was uh, chartered, the organization that was chartered essentially to go and develop nuclear energy, they were completely focused on developing materials for weapons, on enriching uranium and creating plutonium. They had almost no interest in generating nuclear power for electricity. But there was somebody who was interested in generating nuclear power, not for electricity, but for work, to drive a shaft, and that was Captain Hyman Rickover of the Navy. He really, really wanted to build a nuclear reactor to drive a submarine because the submarine had many of the same problems that we had, you know, looking at power in space. It was even worse. You know, he didn't have a solar power option underwater. There was no, he couldn't run a combustion system underwater for a long period of time. He had to have a power source that didn't rely on oxygen or, or solar energy or anything. And nuclear was it. That was all that there was. So he was working fervently to develop a nuclear reactor that could drive a submarine. And he made technology choices, and he was guided by people like Alvin Weinberg, who was also a very strong thorium advocate, into choosing pressurized water and highly enriched uranium as the way to do that. And I agree with those choices. They were the right choices for building a submarine. What happened, though, was his success led later on when people were talking about building power reactors on the ground to try to just copy those kind of reactors, uh, you know, on, on terrestrially on the surface. And that was where Weinberg said, no, 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 this isn't such a good idea. This is a great submarine reactor, but it's not going to lead to low-cost power for the consumer. What it did have the advantage of, though, was it, ha it was the most technologically developed because it had been developed under the Navy's, under the Navy's funding. And so that's how the pressurized water reactor became the, the core of, of what people think of when they think of nuclear power, and that's what we have today. These machines are, are complicated, and uh, I think they could be a lot less expensive than they are because of uh, technology choices that were appropriate when you were thinking about a submarine that had no alternative versus thinking about something on the land that's got to compete with coal and gas. So the nuclear technologies we have now, I don't think represent how inexpensive a nuclear power source could be. In fact, I think they represent a much higher level of expense than, than is necessary. But what will be necessary in order to bring better things online is research and development. And that's where they have the big advantage right now is they are already developed. Um, can you just explain a little bit about what a, a pressurized water reactor is, and particularly because we're going to contrast it with the type of thorium reactor that you uh, are a champion of. Sure. The kind of reactors that predominate today in the United States are built around rods that 
that contain inside them pellets of uranium dioxide fuel. These are ceramic pellets. They kind of look like a Tootsie Roller about that size. And they're, they're in big, long tubes of zirconium metal. So they arrange these tubes in bundles called assemblies, and, and uh, they have a large pressure vessel, very, very thick steel, into which these assemblies are placed. Then they fill it up with water, and that water serves two purposes. It cools the, the rods, these nuclear fuel rods, and it also slows down the neutrons that are emitted from the fission process. And the slowing down the neutrons is really important because that's what enables the reaction to proceed. The trick with water, though, is in order to get it to high enough temperatures to use to raise steam, you have to put it under tremendous pressure. And so these reactors operate at pressures of like, oh, 200 atmospheres of pressure. So they operate under very, very high pressures. And there's an accessory problem with that, too. If you lose pressure with water at those high temperatures, it will flash to steam. And when it flashes to steam, it changes, its density changes. It becomes about a 1,000 times less dense than it was before. It's now a, a gas instead of a liquid. And as a gas, it's not nearly as effective at removing the heat from those rods that's being generated by fission. And so that's why there's a great concern if you have a release of pressure, uh, loss of coolant, you can have a meltdown. So that's how the word meltdown entered into our, our uh, public phobia list, the idea that nuclear fuel would not be cooled, it would melt down, and in the melting would uh, release some of the radioactive fission products that are designed not to be released from the fuel. Okay, so then let's, let's go then uh, to thorium and how, how that works. So you mentioned uh, before, though it would be nice to elaborate a little bit, how um, you're dealing with uh, you know, one consistent isotope. And I believe, is it thorium has uh, uh, 232 neutrons and then you're, you're transforming it to uranium-233, is that right? It has, it has 232 protons and neutrons. So I'd have to think about how many neutrons it has. It has 90 protons and it has 232 protons and neutrons. Got it. Yeah, we'll sorry, my, my, my Exercise mistake. to the audience yeah, to yeah, figure sorry, out sorry, neutrons sorry. that is. But yeah, you're dealing with one, one consistent material. And in the reactor, the reactor has to be started by a fissile material, either uranium-233, which is the best. That's what comes from thorium or, or other fissile materials. Uh, the neutrons from that reaction strike the thorium and they cause it to, they absorb, the thorium absorbs a neutron, it becomes thorium-233 very briefly, and then that decays uh, to protactinium-233 and then uranium-233. And uranium-233 is your fuel. That's the stuff that will fission when it's struck by another neutron. So one way to think about how to use thorium as an energy source is it takes two neutrons to use it, one to turn it into uranium-233 and another one to fission that uranium. So you can think, well, for this to work, the uranium has to give off more than two neutrons in order to continue this virtuous circle. And that was the discovery that was made in, the, in 1944 that was so exciting to them was to find out that uranium-233 would give off like two and a half neutrons in fission. You never, you never give up a half neutron. You either give off three or two. But in, on average, it would give off two and a half. And that's when they realized, wait a minute, we could actually build a reactor. And once we started it, it could run on thorium indefinitely. That's possible. That means we could use thorium as an energy resource. And once that realization was made, it became clear that if such a machine could be built, our energy problems would be over because the Earth has so much thorium. Can you give us a sense of how much? Well, thorium's about as common as lead. And Alvin Weinberg, the uh, leader of Oak Ridge National Lab, in 1959 he wrote a paper where he estimated how long the thorium reserves of the earth would last if we excavated the surface to like a depth of one kilometer. I think it was like 30 billion years, which was about five times longer than the sun's going to last. So to the first order, you can just say the thorium will last forever. It's, it's just far too common. It's uh, too dispersed to, to ever run into any sort of shortage issues. So for anybody who's running out to go buy thorium mining stocks, I'd say, you know, save your money. <laughs> <laughs> If we're wildly successful, thorium will go from being worthless now to slightly worth more than worthless. So then since we talked about cooling uh, with you know, the challenge of, of water, and just, just for people to remember, I mean, we, you know, water bo we know water boils you know, just over 200 degrees, which is not, not that high a temperature. And so, I mean, imagine dealing with much higher temperatures, and you, you know, we all know the equation from school PV equals NRT, so you, just, you have to add on 
uh, a lot of pressure to make this happen. What's what's going on with the thorium reactor? How is how is that? Can that be cooled via pressurized water reactor, or is there? Yeah, and, and let me make a split here in understanding thorium as a fuel versus the reactor technology we're advocating, which is based on liquid fluoride salts. It's possible to load thorium fuel into existing pressurized water reactors and and try to run on thorium that way. And that's it's been done before. It was done at a reactor called Shippingport in Pennsylvania in the late 1970s. It actually showed by modifying a pressurized water reactor, they could build a thorium breeder. It's possible, but it's expensive. And there's another way that shows a lot more long-term promise, and that's to use liquid fluoride salts. These are salts of lithium fluoride, beryllium fluoride, and their big advantage is they have huge liquid range. They don't melt until about 350 degrees Celsius, but then they stay liquid for 1,000 degrees, and they don't have to run at high pressure. That's a tremendous advantage when you're building a nuclear reactor to not have to build a reactor that has to run at high pressure. And yet they can achieve the high temperatures that are needed to generate electricity. And so this was the reactor technology that Alvin Weinberg uh, fostered and promoted when he was at Oak Ridge National Labs and was demonstrated in, in two small test reactors during his time there. Unfortunately, though, the, the program was canceled in the early 1970s and has, has lain essentially dormant ever since. But I and, and many others believe that that is the most promising technique to utilize thorium as an energy resource, is to dissolve the thorium in these fluoride salts and to try to run the reactor in this way because it doesn't require you to go to high pressure and the fluids are chemically stable. They don't react with things chemically. They're very, very uh, happy in the chemical form that they are right now. They also provide you the, the temperature that you need, as I mentioned, to generate electricity and, and let you do other things too, like potentially synthesize hydrocarbons or desalinate seawater or a host of other industrial processes that are only possible at high temperature. And so I feel like it's a very, very compelling direction to go to try to utilize thorium that way. Yeah, I just want to place an exclamation point on, on the last thing you said, which people might not have, have highlighted in their minds, but... Uh, that's something that's often overlooked, just the benefit of being able to generate very high temperatures. And, and the, the applications you mentioned are incredible in terms of synthesizing hydrocarbons. I mean, we think about you can create uh, you know, the most one of the best liquid fuels, and then you can also desalinate seawater, which means all your water problems uh, are over. So that's just an, an incredibly exciting thing. Now, all of this then still ultimately depends on price because you can have a technology that that's fascinating and that has these certain laboratory advantages and yet it's it, it can be uneconomic for various reasons and, and you mentioned that it, it it was expensive to use thorium instead of uranium in a uh, pressurized water reactor so what's what do you think is the ultimate uh, cost potential of uh, you know of, of thorium with the type of reactor that you advocate well, that's a good question. Why, why not use thorium in the kind of reactors we have today? And it has to do with the cost of fabricating and reprocessing solid fuel. And the big advantage of a liquid-fueled reactor is that you skip all of those steps. You never have to form these pellets, and you don't later on have to go and dissolve them and try to chemically separate out the things you want from the things you don't want and then try to recreate them. One of the interesting things about the early history of nuclear energy was it was conceived in large part by chemical engineers, people that were used to dealing with different chemical streams. And they looked at the problem and they said, okay, we're using this machine to turn one element into another. We're kind of like modern-day alchemists. Well, this is all a chemical process. And we're used to using liquids and gases when we, use, when we do chemical processes, not solid. And so many of the, the early ideas were centered on these liquid-fueled reactors. How could we keep the fuel always liquid? Um, I think if you look at our modern society, so many of our advances have come about by switching from a solid fuel to a liquid fuel, going from coal and, and wood powering trains to diesel fuel. You know, we don't have trains that look anything like they used to because now they're based on liquid fuel. We have cars that are based on liquid fuel. We have homes that are heated not by shoveling coal into the furnace, but by uh, piping gas into your house and, and, and burning it in a furnace. So there's really a lot of historical precedent to the advantage of going from solids to liquids and gases in the form of, of your fueling infrastructure. Now, in nuclear, we've never done that, uh, except for those experiments that were done at Oak Ridge. And 
the use of solid fuel constitutes a great expense. That's, it's a lot of steps that go into making solid fuel and then later on unmaking it. And so by skipping those, that's a, that's a powerful cost advantage. But I think an even bigger one would be the ability to improve the safety of a reactor while at the same time reducing costs. When you're dealing with the liquid fuel, the whole idea of meltdown becomes a meaningless idea. The, the reason we worry about meltdown in today's reactors is because melted solid fuel can melt through the, the metal pressure vessel of the reactor. The, the melted fuel is hotter than the melting temperature of the steel. On the other hand, these fluoride salts, when they're melted, they're at temperatures 1,000 degrees below the melting temperature of the vessel they're in. So there is no notion of a meltdown anymore. It's not possible. And these liquid fuels can also be directed to be drained from the reactor in the case of a severe accident. So the biggest cost we have in today's reactors is all of the accessory systems that are built around handling bad days. You know, if a pipe breaks or a system fails or redundancy or valves or everything with stacks of paper to ensure that it was built and fabricated all in the right environment the right day. Because when you're dealing with high pressure, you have to worry if there is a failure. If there's a loss of pressure, it could lead to a meltdown. When you're dealing with liquid fuel, you have an inherently safe system rather than a system that's been engineered safe. And I think that's going to end up being the biggest cost advantage of all is removing system after system after system in the reactor that's designed to handle all of these awful contingencies and replacing it with a reactor that is designed to take care of itself and to eliminate even the possibility of the accident happening in the first place. So, so far we've got, just, just to recapitulate, we've got, you know, the benefit of nuclear fuel, this, this incredible, incredible density. We've got a plentiful, um, incredibly easily accessible raw material in thorium. And then we have uh, a conversion process that seems to be much more efficient uh, in the sense of we could talk about the justification of the various safety systems and whether all of those are necessary or whatever. But in any case, you strip out most of those because you're not dealing with this this problem of uh, of high pressure. To what extent in reality is it now, it seems like, okay, well, let's just build one that's the cheapest source of energy in the world. What's what's standing in the way of that? It's the R&D required to, to get to a, a fully commercialized system. I mean... Back in the early days of nuclear, that bill was footed by the U.S. Navy as they moved to develop these pressurized water reactors for submarines. So they put billions and billions of dollars in getting the technology ready, building the, the vendor base, the, the people who knew how to do this, so that by the time people wanted to build them for power plants, there was already a lot of the industrial infrastructure in place to make that happen. In addition, there were nice young men graduating from the Naval Nuclear Program who knew how to operate them. When it comes to getting a liquid fuel thorium reactor going, uh, we're literally back where we were in 1950. We are having to do the R&D and, and having to train people and, and teach them. Now, we anticipate in the end this is going to be tremendously more effective and, and less expensive than what we have now. But um, as of right now, it's, it, there's a lot of work to do between now and, and when the system will be ready. And, and that will take money. Um. Well, I mean, to play devil's advocate, um, it seems like at least if you had a, a proper legal system with this kind of thing that didn't discriminate against nuclear, which I think it does dramatically uh, today in terms of regarding nuclear-type energy as this unique threat, even though it has the, the best safety record in terms of deaths and that kind of thing, um, it seems like if you had that, then why wouldn't you be able to just get uh, private investors and also, if you did that, it seemed to help avoid a lot of the problems that you've indicated with uh, just kind of people copying baseline government designs and not innovating versus in other industries where you just have a constant competition even within uh, the technology. So is this something that could exist if we set up a proper legal framework versus you know, a giant government research program? Well, that is a very good question. That question all by itself could probably occupy an entire interview uh, because I think you've hit on fundamental questions of government involvement. I can tell you in the early days, everybody agreed that the government should control this. There was just uh, the notion that there was going to be uh, guys on the corner experimenting with technology was just considered completely 
uh, uh, unsafe. So the government stepped in with the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, and they said, we control this completely. No one can touch this except us, and only our people can do it. And when the act was passed in 1946, it was, the comment was made, we've created an island of socialism in the midst of a capitalist democracy. And they wondered if, if, that was a, if that was a good thing. But it was seen as, well, we just really can't accept the alternative. We can't accept the idea of, of uh, free market capitalism going out and developing something that might fail and fail in a really awful way. So that's where we got started with, a, with an admittedly socialist approach to, to how to go do this. Now, here we are 70 years later, and we're scratching our heads going, Maybe that approach isn't such a good idea. It sure has not led to the innovation that we would have hoped and that we see from other industries like the computer industry, almost any industry where free markets and, and capitalism are, are left to, to go and try to succeed. Uh, nuclear has fared under socialism just like about everything else has fared under socialism terribly. So nevertheless, that's the world we're in. <laughs> yeah, just a... Uh... Just to emphasize this, I think it's going back to to your point about Germany um, in the 1930s and and just this complete equation of nuclear energy uh, with nuclear bomb and regarding... I mean, I go speak about nuclear a bunch and you get all these questions and the premise is always that this is some alien, unnatural, uniquely hazardous uh, technology. And this is just a simple falsehood. In fact, it's, it has many safety benefits, including being non-explosive, that essentially nothing else has. And we have very clear statistics showing that this is the safest form of energy uh, ever devised. So I, I see, I mean, you need to have some kind of, of law, but just the idea that using a bunch of uranium-235 and 3.5% concentration, I mean, that can't explode. So I don't, I don't see why it's this, yeah, and you can have a meltdown, but We've seen meltdowns and the consequence of, you know, meltdown versus the consequence of a dam breaking is completely, it's, it's you know, a dam breaking can kill 10,000 people, no problem. Yeah, and, and but see, you've studied this, you know these things, and your average person doesn't. Your average person has almost no idea what happens at a nuclear power plant, how it operates, what's going on inside. They have only the vaguest senses. You know, I've talked to people who say, I think it's like little nuclear bombs are going off in there and they're <laughs> capturing it and they're making energy and, and, and any minute it could just give and the nuclear bombs would go off everywhere. You know, it's that kind of, and I, I, I have a snicker when I hear that, but at the same time I think, you know, this person, probably nobody's ever explained to them how it works. Yeah, I didn't know huh. before I, I mean, I just saw The Simpsons and Three-Eyed Fish and there's this whole stigma with radioactivity. I, mentioned, I remember I was debating someone from Greenpeace and he just keeps saying radioactive, radioactive. And I just asked the audience, how many of you know what radioactive even means? Because they, because I just think of it as okay, it's a natural phenomenon, and in a certain context, in a certain, you know, under certain circumstances, you don't want it. In most cases, it's fine. And, and they just, they just think of the three-eyed fish and the Simpsons that we're just going to all turn into mutants. Yeah, and it's really it's radioactivity again, a whole other topic. It could be its own, its own show. But one of the things I think is really interesting about nuclear energy and radioactivity is every single radionuclide has a very characteristic signature. In other words, you can tell what it was that generated the radiation. You can tell if it came from natural carbon-14 or if it came from artificial cesium-137. And so all the time you'll see these headlines screaming, radioactivity detected. And what they really mean is artificial radioactivity detected. And they never tell you uh, the context of that. They don't say, hey, this cesium-137 was detected, but it was at radioactivity levels a million times lower than the radioactivity naturally in your body from carbon-14 and potassium-40. They don't give people that context. They just say, radioactivity has been detected. Therefore, it must be bad. Therefore, it must be dangerous. And so people don't realize we live in a radioactive world. We are radioactive ourselves, and that's inescapable. We're made out of elements, some of whom have radioactive isotopes. And so it's just the nature of, of, of the world we live in. And, and we have to, when people are explained, when these things are explained to them and they're put in context, the fear goes way down. They go, oh, okay, so you're telling me I already have a baseline level of natural radioactivity and that's okay and my body knows how to repair radio, uh, damage from radioactivity and it happens all the time? Yeah. Okay, so how much threat does this local nuclear power plant uh, pose to me? Essentially none. 
oh, okay. Nobody ever told me that, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I uh, like about your, your videos and your work and Energy from Thorium is I think it's, but it takes a very, very positive and overtly pro-technology approach. I think it's really important in the context where the many of the, the elements that go into technology that we harness using technology like uh, radioactivity and, and f for God's sake, chemicals, which have become a bad word. I mean, chemical, which is everything, is a bad word now. Um, I think by explaining that, it's just it's just such a service to people uh, because they they not only it take not only takes away the stigma but it gets it get it's viewed as oh this is a potent thing that we can harness and that's really how you should I mean obviously it's essential to life in in many ways baseline but it also is this enormous source of opportunity I mean en energy involving radioactivity is just a tremendous opportunity it should be viewed that way because you have so much energy and it's not exploding. Yeah, and, and there's another aspect of that that to me was such a, a revelation when I learned it, which was uh, we know that there's naturally occurring radioactive materials on the Earth, you know, uranium and thorium. But what was explained to me a couple of years ago was how this radioactivity from these naturally occurring elements is what drives the heat generation inside the Earth. And it's what makes things like plate tectonics and volcanism and carbon recycling possible. And more fundamentally, it also generates the Earth's magnetic field which protects the Earth from the solar wind. Look around in the solar system. You know, there are planets that the atmospheres have been stripped away by the solar wind. And, and so you begin to realize, wow, our planet is habitable in large part because of these radioactive elements and the energy that they have been releasing for billions of years. If it wouldn't have been for them, we wouldn't be here. We would not have a living planet. And I, I find that just a, a very, very powerful thought to realize that Life is in large part possible because of the energies from thorium and uranium that have been being released for billions of years. Yeah, I think it, it highlights how there's this idea of, well, natural and artificial, but I, I don't think of human beings as unnatural. I think of us as, as the greatest part of, of nature. I mean, they used to call it the crown of creation before that, you know, be, before it was unfashionable to, to prefer humans to. Uh, other species or even to, to non-living things. But I mean, what we do with energy is we redirect unusable or useless energy into useful energy. And we see, it's, it's really helpful to people, I think, to see, look, these, these processes generate energy within the earth and with all of these, these, these benefits. And yet we can derive so many more benefits by redirecting that energy in ways where it's not naturally directed. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's another thing that I think is, is very powerful when people comprehend it is we are the first species on this planet, as far as we know, to have figured out uh, the nature of matter and the possibility of releasing nuclear energy. That means we can access an energy source that no other form of life can, and in so doing, we're not going to be competing with them for that energy source. If we want to try to run our industrial world on biomass, we are going to be plowing under a lot of fields and a lot of jungles trying to grow energy crops. If we're going to try to harness solar and wind, we're going to be covering a lot of acres. In every case, we're displacing other species and, and other ecosystems. On the other hand, when we use extremely energy-dense uh, energy sources like uranium and thorium, we're using energy source no other species does, and we can minimize our, our impact on the Earth if you want to look at it that way. We can, we can really... Um, we can have clean air, we can have clean water, and, and we can have a, a minimal uh, energy footprint. The alternatives that are promoted, unfortunately, in, in large part by many environmentalists, would have terrible impacts on the environment. Trying to run the world on wind and solar and biomass, it would be devastating to the environment. And we, and we already are seeing that in different places in the world, in Indonesia and in Brazil, where they think, okay, let's really go try to run things on biomass. And, and it has just been uh, devastating. And I think that points to a, a divide among, you know, there are di different uh, people concerned, you know, who have different views of, of you know, man-made global warming and to what extent is it minor to what, you know, all the way through catastrophic. But I think the divide uh, among those who, who, you know, think it's it's a, a serious issue is what is their attitude toward nuclear power? So it's always, a, when I, if I'm ever discussing that issue with someone, I always ask, you, what is your attitude? Because if you don't favor nuclear power, it's a joke. You don't actually care uh, about this issue, and what I think what you find if you look at the environmentalist literature is that the ultimate opposition to uh, hydrocarbons is not 
because of the byproducts of generating the energy, but because of opposition to using the energy. And this is why when there was this idea of uh, maybe fusion is practical in the late 80s, the leading environmentalists all said, no, this would be the worst thing ever because human beings armed with unlimited, effectively free energy is the worst thing because they, they think it's wrong for human beings to use energy uh, uh, to change the world around them. So it's really not about, I think there's just this divide. And, and what's great about the nuclear people, whatever their view on global warming is, is it's they recognize that it's so important and so good for human beings to be able to use a lot of energy uh, to improve their lives, whereas other people have a, have a deep hostility toward that. Oh, I completely agree. And, and I, I just frankly won't yield an inch to anybody who says that, that we shouldn't be using energy because I, I, I say energy is the basis of our civilization. It always has been. And as we've improved our energy consumption, we've had a better and higher standard of living. And I see no reason to think that that is going to diminish in the future. You know, my name's Kirk, so I always get Star Trek jokes growing up. But <laughs> one of the things I'm fond of telling people is I'm like, hey, well, you know, what are they using Star Trek? You know, what, what's the future running on in Star Trek? Everybody has a nice job and they wear nice uniforms and, you know, they seem to have nice lives. And, you know, are they doing on wind power or solar panels? You don't see many of those in the Starship Enterprise. No, of course, it's nuclear energy. You know, that's where we're going. Uh, if we want to have a an attractive and, and appealing future, we're going to be using more energy. I mean, we've got 5 billion people on this planet who use a tiny fraction of the energy we do in the West, and they live miserable lives for it. They want to use more energy. They want to have lights and air conditioning and toilets to flush, and they want to have clean water. And you know what? I want them to have all those things. And by using these million-to-one uh, more energy-dense resources, I think that's entirely possible. We can have more energy consumption in the future, far greater fraction of humanity with, with access to energy, better quality of living, and yet far less environmental impact than what we're having today. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I love, I, I love the optimism, and it's definitely, you know, Center for Industrial Progress is definitely built on that, that premise that industrial progress, I mean, massively more is both possible and necessary with the right policies. So what, what can we do, uh, you know, what can our listeners do to uh, promote thorium and I mean, there's the issue of free market policies, but if the government is going to get involved in energy, it should for sure be promoting nuclear and not the biggest energy f failures that have very little upside. So what, what can our listeners do to, to move the tide at all in that direction? Well, I think the first thing is get educated, you know, learn as much as you can about this. Talk to your friends and neighbors about it. I, I can't tell you how many great opportunities I've had uh, for you know, significantly moving this technology forward that have come about because somebody's spoken up and somebody said something to someone else. Hey, have you looked into thorium? Hey, have you heard of thorium? Do you think about thorium or lifter? You know, and, and good things really do uh, come about from that. And, and that will reflect into our, into our uh, governmental process eventually. I mean, let's, let's face it, our, our politicians don't lead, they follow. They follow what they think people want. Right now they think people want solar panels and windmills. And so they say a bunch of stuff about them, whether or not it's true or good or not. If people tell their politicians that we want clean energy from thorium, then you'll see them start to act. But it, it really will come from the ground up, not from the top down. I, as much as I'd love to believe that we're going to have you know, far-sighted leadership in the future that are going to say, hey, we're going to do this. I just don't think that's going to happen. Politicians have always been uh, responsive rather than proactive. So, well, I think with thorium, I mean, one of um you know, not not to, you know, intrinsically pr uh, prefer thorium to uranium. Although you've you've made some good points about that, but I think one one thing that's nice about thorium is it provides us with the opportunity for somewhat of a fresh start in terms of just discussing uh, the power of fission technology to improve human life and to, you know, from the beginning to describe this as a really exciting uh, technology rather than. Uh, allow the other side to just give it the, the stigma of a bomb. So I think it's really important that people see uh, your work and your website. Where can they find that? Uh, please visit energyfromthorium.com. Uh, that's our, our nonprofit group, Energy from Thorium Foundation. Uh, there's also the company I work for, which is Flybe Energy, F-L-I-B-E-Energy.com. And we are working to develop the liquid fluoride thorium reactor technology and, and turn it into a um, a commercial product. Uh, all right, great. Before we sign off, any uh, final thoughts? I just appreciate the opportunity to come on here and, and talk with you, and I, I really appreciate the insights that you gave. I, I, I strongly agree with them. Uh, yeah, well, I, I really appreciate uh, your work, and, and I mean, for many reasons, just and 
you know, the one that stands out, I think, if people watch the videos is just the, the, the pure enthusiasm for technology and the, the power of, of technology and, and fundamentally energy technology uh, to improve human life because that I think that enthusiasm when spread will really lead us in the right direction versus any kind of uh, defensive or boring approach. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Alex. All right. Thanks a lot, Kirk. Thanks so much to Kirk for coming on the show. I have to say one just pleasure of interviewing him is that he's so articulate and just, I mean, he just has these perfect answers to everything. And, and it's a bit humbling interviewing him because I, I just, he can just construct these, these perfect answers, no pauses. That's, I'm sure you noticed that, that listening to him, that's just great. And he just has this way of breaking down all the issues. But even more importantly, it's great that he's, he's articulate, but more importantly, I think, is just is the cause, both the concrete cause of thorium and the broader cause of, of being pro-energy and technology. It's very rare to meet someone who's that passionately pro-energy and technology. And he really puts his money where his mouth is and his time where his mouth is because he goes around educating people about both the potential value of thorium energy technology, but more broadly, the value of, of energy technology. And I just want to thank him uh, again for that. I, we pretty much covered everything during the interview that I wanted to cover. I was really, really interested by his, uh, by his answers on different things. The point, I just wanted to elaborate on a point I indicated at the end that could be misinterpreted, which has to do with if the government is involved in energy, then it should support nuclear. And, and this comes up, it's, it's a tricky point to think about if you're an advocate of, of free market capitalism, but there's a, a process and a sequence by which you move from a socialist state of affairs, which as Kirk mentioned is what we have with nuclear, to a capitalist state of affairs. And we want, at any given stage, we want the best policy possible. So if the government is getting in, is involved and we don't have a ready way of getting it out right now, it should at least be have a pro-technology policy. And you can think of this with in conjunction with something like a plot of land that the government has taken over that it shouldn't take over, that you believe should be private property. Well, there's still better and worse ways for the government to use the land. And the government certainly shouldn't be depriving human beings of the ability to either enjoy that land or to uh, extract the raw materials and benefit from that land. So when we have something like the uh, Anwar in Alaska, the, the you know wildlife refuge where we can't really enjoy it much and you can't drill for oil, even though it's just such a, um, there's n you know, no conceivable negative impact of it, an incredible positive impact. That's the kind of policy that the government shouldn't have. And we have every right to say, well, the go if the government's gonna be there, they should allow oil drilling, even though ultimately I'd say, that should be private uh, properties. It's the same thing with government investment in R&D. If it's going to invest in R&D, it had better invest in the most, in the truly potent technologies like, like nuclear technology instead of investing in technologies for ideological and ultimately religious reasons, which are the only real way that solar and wind are considered exciting uh, technologies. As, as Kirk discussed there, uh, very diffuse sources of energy because they're, they're nuclear power from a very large distance, and then they're intermittent sources uh, of energy. So they're just simply, they've, they've failed on the market, and uh, in terms of the basic nature of the power, they're, they're fundamentally unexciting, absent some breakthrough that we can't conceive of. Of course, people can do that, but there, there is no, there's no evidence that's, that's a thing. So it's real, just, it's really criminal that the government is, is spending so much supporting uh, essentially worthless technologies that add no value or subtract value, and that it is discouraging in many ways uh, the best technologies. Anyway, thanks again uh, to Kirk. That was that was really exciting. We I mentioned I think that we have now the I Love Nuclear Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com/iheartnuclear and. Already, uh, Thomas Iden, who is a researcher for us, has been putting up some really good content every day. Just, just a lot of f fascinating, fun information uh, about nuclear power. And 
I think I think you'll really enjoy that. So check that out at facebook.com slash iHeartNuclear. And I just think it's great that we have that page up because although we're associated with fossil fuels, really fundamentally we're about energy, more fundamentally we're about technology, and even more fundamentally we're about uh, human flourishing and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so with that, that's this week's episode. If you want to contact me, as always, love mail. Hate mail questions, comments, go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Next time we'll be back with another great guests, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.